Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And tonight we are picking up on page 88 with paragraph 81. And for the last few weeks, we've been reading step number four on obedience. And in this sense, our group on the Evergetinos and the Ladder of Divine Ascent have been matching up very well. Uh, the theme in, in both works has, has been obedience uh, in large part. And so we're really being immersed in the, the wisdom of the fathers in this regard and, and great depth. And, uh, but again, you know, John Climacus is one of the great uh, teachers of the spiritual tradition, uh, writes with a great clarity along with uh, Cassian and Isaac. I would say that he's one of the, the best of writers and uh, takes us very deep into each area. And then this is especially true with obedience and then repentance, which will be the next step or penitence. Uh, so again, we're starting with uh, page or paragraph 81. Attend to yourself in the presence of your brethren and never try to appear more righteous than they are in any circumstance, whatever. For if you do, you'll have wrought a double ill for you will, you will sting them by your false and hypocritical zeal and you will assuredly gain presumption for yourself. So there can often be a tendency in the spiritual life to want to appear uh, to be righteous, to appear to be holy. Uh, and so it's often rooted in a, a kind of self-esteem. And, uh, and so where one can appear to be holy before, uh, before the eyes of other or others are doing holy things. Uh, often we will make our, our seen. And uh, John warns that in, in doing this, we can uh, do harm, spiritual harm to our, our brothers and sisters in the spiritual life, that uh, those who might be struggling, uh, it can sting them, but not in a good way. I think when we put on airs, uh, as well as drawing us into a kind of conceit or hypocritical zeal, he tells us here. So a double ill is, takes place. We are wounding uh, someone else spiritually by holding ourselves up, uh, but falsely as an image of holiness, uh, but also then drawing ourselves down uh, by being filled with pride and conceit. Number 82. Be zealous within your soul without showing it in the least outwardly, either by visible sign or by word or by a hint. And you will only do this when you stop looking down on your neighbor. But if you're still inclined to do this, become like your brethren so that you will do not so that you do not differ from them simply in being conceited. So again, you know, to live the hidden life. We don't often hear this spoken of, uh, I think, in today's conversations about the spiritual life. Uh, St. Philip Neri, who I have a great love for, <clears throat> one of his sayings was, love to be unknown, uh, not to be seen. And in particular, those in formation were really not to engage in any kind of ministry or any kind of study even that what they were to be engaged in was the, the science of the fathers, the life of prayer and of hiddenness of being focused upon God and engaged in the ascetic life, striving to overcome the passions 
in their own life. And similarly, I think John is putting this before his readers as well. Live the hidden life and do not manifest uh, your virtues publicly. Uh, and if you're around others who are, are struggling in one way or another, uh, don't seek to throw them into a kind of dishonor by becoming conceited and allowing yourself to become visible in terms of any virtue that you might obtain. Become like them, uh, not certainly in engaging in sinful behavior, but in, engage others where they are, not in a condescending way, uh, but with love and generosity, uh, generosity of spirit. And uh, we heard Paul talk about this uh, in one of his letters. I can't remember exactly where it is found, that, uh, but he's, he, he talks about this uh, in, in the sense of uh, lo loving others and engaging them in such a way uh, for the sake of Christ, uh, that uh, especially when he's talking about following dietary laws and things such as this, uh, and uh, going along with you know the Gentiles who might even still be being offer offering what they eat to the gods, that you know part of his evangelizing there was to understand who he what who he was dealing with and where they were in their spiritual life, and so not to, to be. Uh, heavy-handed in our engagement of others, and certainly not to do so in such a way that it diminishes them, that our, our approach to others is always to be, uh, to arise out of a spirit of generosity and to bear witness to them, mostly by our love and our care for them, rather than by a kind of show of virtue or, uh, you know, this kind of heavy-handed preaching or uh, teaching uh, of, of the gospel or, or, or any of the teachings of the faith. I think we move very quickly in our day and age to argument, to dispute. And it often, as we've talked about before, can be very aggressive where there should be a, a kind of tenderness and attentiveness that really is uh, the foundation, I think, of our engagement with others. In fact, some of the modern elders write about this, that attentiveness or gentleness can be uh, some of the, the greatest and most important of, of virtues, that this really speaks to how we engage the people we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, that we approach them with the tenderness of Christ itself. And it's often those that we are around the most that we can be the roughest with in speech or behavior, and so to cultivate this kind of sensitivity to others, where they are in the spiritual life, what they might be struggling with, and always to engage them with this kind of tenderness of spirit. Any comments so far on either of these paragraphs? Okay. Uh, now, paragraph 83, I saw an inexperienced disciple who in the presence of certain people boasted of the achievements of his teacher, thinking to win glory for himself from another's harvest. But he only earned for himself dishonor, for everybody asked him, but how could a good tree grow such a barren branch? <laughs> I've always loved this, uh, this line from uh, John Clown, because he, I feel it always has a good sense of humor that shows itself frequently. But uh, the, this is a kind of conceit that we can fall into, 
you know, the, the desire to be associated with certain individuals who are known for the particular gifts that they have, uh, either intellectually or, or spiritually, John is telling us here. And so to boast about a relationship with uh, a particular spiritual elder or spiritual director uh, isn't necessarily going, it's certainly not going to do us any, any good, but it's going to make people wonder, especially if we're not living a very good and holy life or that we lack those virtues, how, you know, how in the world is that relationship with that elder producing such fruit or a barren branch, as John, John tells us here. So there are all these subtle ways in this spiritual life that we are capable of falling into exactly the same things that we might associate with more worldly, a more worldly life, you know, a kind of boasting or conceitedness, you know, religious people aren't impervious to these kinds of things. And in, in fact, we can be the worst at it, you know, in the sense that uh, we, we, we think that we are being religious or pleasing to God when in fact we're doing something that's quite contrary to the gospel, but we can be ever so convinced that we're doing something good. 84, it is not when we courageously endure the derision of our father that we are judged patient, but when we endure it from all manner of men, for we bear with our father both out of respect and as a duty to him. So it's not, not a great thing to bear with being corrected by one's spiritual elder. That, uh, you know, a kind of respect for him, a sense of duty, as John says, might be what guides us or allows us to, to endure that. The real test of uh, humility, uh, which would be a fruit of obedience, really comes when we see it acted out in our relationships with everyone, uh, whether of equal state or even if they're under us in some capacity and in regards to authority or position, that we engage all people with uh, this kind of spirit of humility and that we're dutiful, that we uh, are obedient in the truest sense of the word, that we're able to hear what needs to be done or what needs to be responded to what love demands in any given situation or relationship. And so that should be true, not simply with our spiritual elder, but with every person that we meet in the course of a day. That's where you really begin to see how deeply rooted the spirit of obedience has become. You know, it can be easy, you know, I think when there is respect there, you know, uh, for, for someone who's living a holy life to, to respond to them well, or to respond to somebody who holds a particular office. It's another thing to have the spirit of, be, of obedience permeate every relationship that we have in the course of our day-to-day our -day life. Any comments about that? So this would be true. You know, I think even, you know, we have a lot of parents here as well. And you think about this, you know, uh, how would something like this spirit of obedience manifest itself in uh, every relationship, even with, you know, those who uh, are our children? And part of it, again, has to do with our capacity to listen, that uh, so often we are thinking about what we're going to say, or again, we will place our judgment, our opinion, 
on a certain set of circumstances or uh, an idea that we'll, we'll put that forward and we'll have that be the lens through which we see things or what we hear people say and it will it can skew it and uh, prevent us from hearing what is being said with any kind of clarity or again a generosity of spirit so even in relationships like family life uh the, the spirit of obedience you know certainly to our call to holiness of life but uh the obedience that we have in our particular vocations you know as mother father wife husband you know how how we enter into those relationships on on a day-to-day -day basis you know this mutual uh humbling of oneself before uh each other should be a part of all those relationships any comments such obedient souls all right number 85 eagerly drink scorn and insult as the water of life from everyone who wants to give you this drink that cleanses from lust then a deep purity will dawn in your soul and the light of God will not grow dim in your heart. I found this a curious saying, you know, our willingness to drink of the cup of scorn and insult as being something that leads to, to purity of heart that would free one from lust. And, uh, and so I, I think it does pull us back to seeing the struggle with lust as well as seeing the struggle with all the passions as as being fundamentally rooted in the pursuit of purity of heart that uh that all of the ascetical life has as, as its immediate goal uh purity of heart the purifying of the eye the heart the noose so that we might discern clearly that we might see things clearly as god sees them and so our willingness to bear with insult and the derision of others and the, the humbling that takes place there uh, purifies us of any spirit of arrogance, of conceit. And with that comes the gift of humility. And from that is born the capacity to see things with a greater clarity. If we don't hold on to any kind of false dignity uh, or false self-esteem, then it transforms the way that we see things. And so we begin to see not only others uh, uh, with a greater clarity, but the way that we see the objects of our desire or the things that we seek to satisfy our own appetites shifts as well. We no longer look at others or, or the things of this world through the same eyes, through the same lens any longer. The purer the heart becomes, the less that we seek to possess as a commodity what others can give us on an emotional level, physical level, or what any other thing in this world could give us in that sense. And so I think astutely, John is telling us here our, our willingness to bear those insults and even to drink freely of it and not to be undone by it 
we begin to see this deeper purity begin to emerge within the soul. And uh, again, you know, I don't think we hear this in common conversation about the, the, the spiritual life. Uh, the idea of drinking from the cup of scorn or derision and doing that joyfully because we know the fruit that it produces within the heart is not something that we talk about uh, most, most likely because there's a profound resistance within us to doing it that we hold on to self-esteem, we hold on to ego so tightly that the idea of bearing with such things becomes very difficult for us. And so, you know, this would be a good part, I think, of our examination of conscience on a day-to-day -day basis. How have I dealt with those circumstances where, you know, I've been called to re receive what others have give, give me that perhaps seems unpleasant uh, to our sensibilities? And have I dealt with that patiently? And more, have I allowed myself to embrace that in the spirit that John describes here with humility, but also with this sense of hope that it, it, would, that it would bear the free fruit of purifying my heart? Or, or have I clung to self-esteem? Johnny Ross writes, the paradox of true freedom is that it is found in obedience and conformity to our spiritual practices shown by Christ. True freedom is not being able to do what you want. That is the distortion of modernity. That's right. You know, I think uh, our standard is always Christ himself who teaches us in the most perfect way the, the meaning of obedience and the fruit that it bears. You know, for us, it brought... Uh, freedom from sin and uh, life in Christ, a participation in the life of the Holy Trinity, you know, opens up for us the path to, to deification. And so far from resisting it, we should be seeking to overcome the defenses that we have uh, to em embracing these things in, in order that we might pursue this path of true freedom and to, to find the true self in Christ, not in the image that we hold on to in our own minds or what the world tells us is of great value. Carol Nypaper. What if bearing with insults causes suspicion from one's boss in the workplace? At what point can we defend ourselves? Doesn't justice demand that? sort of interesting, you know, that we, we find in the fathers, and we'll, we hear it here in this, in this step or the next, where we are told that when it comes to ourselves, that uh, our bearing of derision or insult is to be embraced. When it's a matter of justice in regard to another, when we are protecting the, the, the well-being or the, the name of another or somebody that's experiencing injustice, that we would then have the freedom to engage, to, to correct, to speak the truth there. But for ourselves, the, the, uh, this kind of silence that is willing to, to bear, bear with it, even if it comes at great cost. And again, you know, this, the standard for this isn't the Desert Fathers and what they teach. The standard of this is Christ himself, whom are more worthy 
uh, of you know, being treated with dignity uh, than Christ himself. And yet we see his response uh, to constant derision and insult, constant plotting against him, animosity, uh, you know, trying to catch him in, in every teaching or even to falsely accuse him of, of blasphemy in order that they uh, could arrest him and ultimately put him to death. And so, you know, in our life and in our conformity to Christ, uh, this is what is to shape our, our thinking. And I think so often our, our thoughts move, and your question's a good one, because I, I think our, our thoughts move to that. What about justice? Or, you know, or we want to move instinctively to protect ourselves or what seems necessary or good, or as you said here, you know, what if a kind of suspicion arises against me because of what another person is saying? Uh, right, Carol, is this uh, Carol Roper who put this down or was this Carol? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And so again, the image for us is that of, of, of Christ. And, uh, you know, it's important for us. And I think this is in many ways where we lose our way is that we don't make him the standard. This is what we are called to be as human beings. This is what it means to love. This is what it means to be obedient. You know, and our love, as we've talked about so often, is cruciform. And uh, in this world, that's going to mean that we aren't received well, and that we're seen as crazy for the, the path that we are taking. Ambrose Little. I wonder if some of the genius is that instead of trying to tackle lust head on, it's coming at it from a different angle, one that is less associated with bodily desire, the mental desire for respect, high opinion of yourself, pride, though is similar in that it is also disordered desire. So if we learn to tame pride by embracing scorn, that exercise can teach us experientially how to tame lust or the other passions. Exactly right, wonderful point. And uh, the fathers often tell us to do exactly that, that facing certain passions head on, it often meets with frustration, especially those that have a great hold upon us. And so in a counterintuitive way, uh, it is often best for us to, to keep our focus upon Christ himself in the, in, in the struggle with those passions, but to focus upon the things that are tied to a passion and that will strengthen our will and weaken the effect of the particular passion that we struggle with the most in our life. So often, Cassian in particular, in his institutes, as well as in the conferences, talk about, talks about if you struggle with lust, then focus on gluttony, ordering another appetite, another bodily appetite, for example. So to control the amount of food that you take in and to fast and to link that fasting with prayer strengthens you also in, in the sense of your will and struggling with another appetite. And so often this is uh, 
a major struggle, especially early in the spiritual life, the struggle with the bodily passions and those that are rooted in bodily appetites can be deeply frustrating, especially if the struggle is rooted in many years of giving oneself over to them freely. And so uh, often one has to be reminded uh, to keep one's focus upon the mercy of God, but also to focus upon those things that can strengthen us in, in this spiritual life and strengthen us in the battle with the other passions. So it's an excellent point. And I think you're, you're right on that here, you know, the, the struggle with lust being overcome by overcoming another passion is exactly what he's saying. If you can overcome self and this desire for self-esteem, then certainly you're going, you can overcome you know, the, the pull of the bodily appetites. Because, you know, as we struggle to let go of ego and self-esteem, we have to cling to God and cling to his grace uh, in order not to let our anger draw us to this quick response. And with that comes great purity of heart. And so we'll be aided then, you know, perhaps in something that's more of a struggle for us. Very good. Uh, there are a couple other comments here that I, I don't want to skip over. Jeffrey Ott wrote, this seems to align with Evagris's conversations on meekness and how courage and patience work together. The work of courage and patience is to know no fear of enemies and eagerly to endure afflictions. Yes, you know, I think Evagris certainly is, uh, we see the thread of his thought in so many of the fathers. And certainly we see it in Cassian, but in basically all the fathers that we are looking at. And, uh, but uh, yes, you know, what he's talking about here, meekness, you know, this ability by the grace of God uh, to allow love to shape uh, the kind of aggression that arises from the insensitive faculty of the soul. When we come, become incensed at an injustice that we see uh, around us or, uh, or that's being directed towards us, it is love that shapes that the, and uh, fosters this spirit of meekness that allows us not to respond with greater aggression towards others but to respond in a more measured way. And again, you know, we see in Evagrius and Climacus this, uh, you know, this capacity to see the inner workings of the mind and the heart very well, you know, that they could make these connections between the various passions, the kinds of thoughts that we have uh, in order to engage more fully in the spiritual battle. I think so often we are, like a reed blown in the wind, you know, by the, the things that we confront on a day-to-day -day basis, the thoughts that come to our mind. And we often lack this kind of clarity uh, in what we do or how we respond to the things that we encounter uh, from moment to moment. And uh, Cassian's on the eight vices, it's in the first volume of the Philokalia, or as I mentioned in the institutes or, or in the conferences, really lays out in almost about 20 pages, just uh, a very short read, but it's wonderful in 
speaking about how the passions manifest themselves in our life, the, the different forms they take, how they're tied together, but then also the remedies that come to us from the fathers. Uh, I've often thought that this would be perfect reading, uh, you know, at the beginning of seminary or any formation program. And certainly I think uh, for any of us, you know, it, it's a great primer for the spiritual life as the whole and the internal battle of the ascetic life. So if you ever have the opportunity to read it, it's well, well worth your while, well, well worth the time. Uh, and then uh, there was one more thought, Cindy Moran. I've known some who have stayed in an abusive marriage saying that they're trying to grow in holiness. Yes, you know, this is where it's important to be discerning and also to have those around us who are discerning as well. That what arises out of the obedience or purity of heart here that we've been talking about so often is this ability to discern the truth, to see things clearly. And that also includes relationships that are abusive or toxic or destructive. And uh, often I hear, and sometimes it's from those who are faithful, but uh, are, are presented or have been presented with the moral uh, life or spiritual life in this kind of black and white fashion that would keep them in relationships that are harmful. And all on Monday, you know, we are reading from the Evercatinus about how important it is not to remain in those relationships that bring spiritual harm to us, that we should avoid them. And so if we're in a relationship that's clearly abusive, uh, it, it is, uh, you know, a distortion of the, the religious life and the spiritual life in the highest degree to tell someone to remain within it, uh, especially when it can bring physical or emotional harm. And so even as we, you know, seek to conform ourselves to Christ, it has to be with a kind of, of a spirit of wisdom and discernment that we can see that which is from God or that which is from the evil one or simply destructive and harmful. And so for you know, these individuals, if you know somebody who stays in that relationship to guide them to good counsel, uh, even the church says this, you know, about uh, marriages, you know, for example, that where there is abuse or where there is a breakdown, that sometimes it's necessary that there be separation from bed and table in order that a kind of clarity would emerge about what is going on in the relationship, what needs to be done for healing to take place, or even if there is healing that is possible or if there's freedom within that relationship at all, that the relationship even exists, that perhaps because of some psychological disorder, uh, that it, it is that one or the other spouses does not really have the freedom to enter into uh, a, a lifelong relationship. And so the church is very pastoral in this re regard. And so we don't want to blindly uh, look at these teachings without a kind of discerning spirit. It's a good question. Ambrose Little. 
Ambrose writes, not a few saints have embraced significant personal suffering as a way of penance. Do you think it is ever right to endure, for example, an abusive relationship as a form of penance? Or what about abusive brother in a monastic community? Yeah, you know, I think that there is a level of discernment, as I'd mentioned, that goes along with this as well, and why having a spiritual elder be able to guide one through, through these kinds of relationships, because oftentimes they are purifying, uh, you know, where we deal with members of a community that have radically different personalities and temperaments, or perhaps do not like us for one reason or another, or treat us with hostility. For a person who uh, is emotionally and spiritually mature, they may be able to move th through that and grow in holiness throughout the context of their life within, uh, within a religious community, for example. Uh, but even there, uh, I think it, it, it takes that kind of emotional and spiritual maturity, as well as the guidance of another to, to lead you through it. Uh, otherwise, it could be exactly what, what Cindy described, that it is become something ultimately that is destructive to the person in terms of their relationship with God, as, as well as emotionally, you know, that they are beaten down uh, to such a level that they have a hard time functioning and, uh, you know, either through anxiety or, or depression. And certainly, you know, in the course of my life as a priest, I've talked to a lot of people in this regard, uh, where there is this sense of, you know, both, you know, in religious or married who think, you know, I need to, you know, dig in my heels here, which is something that is different from obedience. Again, obedience is ab adore to hear, you know, what God is saying to us in and through any given situation or relationship you know is this something from god or something that leads to god and sometimes the answer to that question is going to be no and uh so again you know the level of discernment here is is very important any other thoughts all right paragraph 86 if anyone sees that the brotherhood is comforted by his efforts, he should not boast of it in his heart because thieves are around. Always remember him who said, when you have done all that is commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. The judgment on our labors, we shall know at the time of our death. So really, it's only on the other side of the grave that we have any clarity about how we've lived our life and how fully it has been in accord with the will of God. And we shouldn't boast then if we see our efforts, whether it's in marriage or any relationship or religious community, as bringing benefits to others, or that it brings comfort, or there's guidance that comes through it, or simply a peacefulness, a kind of stability. God may indeed be working through us and acting uh, through us by his grace. Uh, but again, we are to attribute all good things as coming from him and beginning and ending with him. And so have that freedom and humility to be, be able to say, I've only done my duty 
You know, I've only done and acted in accord with the, the dignity and identity that has come to me in and through Christ. And so who am I to boast except to boast in the Lord and what he has done and made possible for me? If I love or if I'm able to bring peace to others, it's because Christ has given me that love and peace first. It's not because I've created it. All right, let's see here. Number 87, a monastery is an earthly heaven. Therefore, let us dispose our heart to be like angels serving the Lord. Sometimes those who live in this heaven have hearts of stone. So, but sometimes again, through compunction, they attain to consolation in such a way as to avoid conceit or presumption and they lighten their labors with tears. So it's interesting, you know, he's telling us that the monastic path is a beautiful one and to give oneself over it full, to it fully, to have God as the constant focus of one's worship, to have it be angelic, the lives would be angelic. So in whatever work one is doing within the community, in one's relationship with the brothers, in the stillness and the silence, the thoughts, the mind, the heart are all turned toward God. And so rightly, this would be called paradise. And insofar as we seek that in our day-to-day -day, day -day lives, to make all that we do and all that we experience be a sacrifice of praise to God, that our life becomes this paradise. The more that we live in Christ, the uh, but he, tell, he tells us that th there are those who are called into this life and even experience and taste something of the sweetness of it. But because of their negligence or because of their hearts, uh, their conceit, their hearts harden and they, they lose that experience of, of it being that paradise. And they again become consumed with the self. So they become filled with conceit. They begin to engage, begin to engage others out of that conceit. Or they begin to live the life in this kind of perfunctory way that, you know, that they are taken care of by this community. They make their way through that life, but be, begin to cease striving for Christ. They lose that desire for him. And this is where John says that uh, in the last sentence here, but sometimes again, through compunction, they attain to consolation in such a way to avoid that conceit and presumption, and they lighten their labors with tears. So it is the sense of one's own poverty and one, the, the, the weakness of one's own sin and our need for God's grace and the tears that flow from that compunction, the true sorrow for it, that they uh, allow the heart to remain softened before the Lord, that the tears, you know, constantly arising out of our prayer are, are, are like a new baptism, uh, John will tell us eventually. And it's in this that a person keeps from being hardened in the life and the discipline that they've embraced. Uh, again, you know, think of it, you know, an ascetic life and embracing all these disciplines outside of that desire for the Lord, outside of a yearning for his love, is going to harden the heart. 
and uh, simply make an individual uh, kind of miserable to live with because, and even ultimately draw them into despair that uh, to strip oneself of the things of this world, uh, uh, but to lose sight of the love of Christ and to do it outside of the desire for that love is to become the most pitiable of all creatures. And, uh, and so, you know, we really want to, to strive in the ascetical life to keep Christ at the center and allow him to be our consolation and never lose that desire that draws us forward. The, the desire that understands that we are incomplete outside of that relationship with him and that we are incapable of saving or purifying ourselves. Any comments or thoughts about this? Eighty-eight. A little fire softens a large piece of wax. So too, a small indignity often softens, sweetens, and wipes away suddenly all the fierceness and sensibility and hardness of our heart. So a powerful statement you know, that a little indignity uh, can be enough to uh, open our eyes or to pull us out of this state where we, we have lost sight of Christ and lost sight of who we and what we are about. And so somebody insulting us or making light of what we do uh, can be just like a splash of cold water to wake us up to the reality that again, that our, our dignity, our identity comes from Christ. And, uh, and so the image here is the powerful one, a little bit of fire softens wax. And so this little bit of indignity, a lot of times God will allow us to experience it. And sometimes in this just piercing way by those who are around us or closest to us, who say something to us or don't say something to us, or give us a harsh look or neglect to notice what, what it is that we are doing or the sacrifices that we're making. Sometimes that will be enough to draw our hearts back to where they need to be, onto Christ. That we, we can oftentimes experience consolation in the spiritual life, but take hold of that consolation as if it were our own. You know, we grab hold of it and in grabbing hold of it and admiring it, sort of like Gollum with the, the ring and the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, that it becomes our precious and there's an illusion about it. You know, it's, it seems like it's the most wonderful thing in the world, but that little indignity John is telling us wakes us up to reality to say, no, you know, my, my value isn't dependent on how someone views me or whether my, my virtue is acknowledged or my sacrifices are acknowledged. What's important is that Christ sees Always good to throw a little Lord of the Rings <laughs> in there. Any thoughts on that little paragraph? Okay. 89. I once saw two sitting in hiding and watching the labors and listening to the groans of the ascetics. But one was doing this in order to emulate them 
The other in order, when the chance came, openly to mock and to impede God's labor and his good work. So, you know, when we see others engaged in the spiritual life and engaging in the ascetic life, and it's, in, you know, he uses this word groan, you know, that those who are striving with every ounce of their being, and we've talked often about this when Christ speaks of entering through the narrow gate, and the word that he uses there is agon, to agonize. So those who are deeply immersed in the ascetic life, striving uh, to take hold of the one thing necessary or to enter by the narrow way are going to, uh, you know, groan at the sight of their own poverty, uh, but also the, the sight of the, the demons that seek to afflict them and to pull them away from that path. And uh, humility should teach us to emulate the one who's groaning because they see things clearly. They see their own poverty. They see the uh, spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And so are ca calling out to God from really the depths of their being. Uh, and uh, the one who mocks this, you know, as, you know, a kind of, uh, antiquated piety or unsophisticated piety uh, has lost sight or has lost their, their way altogether. It's to mock that which is good and holy and the truer path to Christ, the path of humility. And, you know, this comes up often, you know, where, you know, where people will read certain things from the fathers or they'll see someone who's living a life where there is this striving. And when they see their piety and their reverence and, and in one way or another not, not, are amused by it or allow themselves to be amused by it rather than allowing it to stir that same desire for God within them. You know, if they're, they're, you know, each person is unique in that regard. And we have to be very careful about how we look at and treat others' piety, their expre the expression of their love, their desire for God, and the expression of their, their faith. And we, uh, in, in doing so, you know, uh, can find ourselves falling into a kind of deep conceit there. And, you know, I think when we read the fathers, you know, we're very fortunate, I think, to have them accessible to us. And the anthropology and psychology of the, of the fathers is so rich and so deep. And having read them, you know, we can't allow that to shape the mind and the heart in such a way that it allows us to look down with scorn at other uh, forms of piety that we see, or maybe where we see uh, an in incompleteness in it, or, or feel that it, it is lacking in some measure of the fullness of the spiritual tradition. We can't look down on it. We have to understand that God will guide 
people in his own way and given their own station in life and their own experience. And we always have to be very respectful of that. And this is particularly important for those who are involved in spiritual direction, that you, you cannot ride roughshod on a person's piety and any more than a psychologist can take you know, a sledgehammer to somebody's defense mechanisms. You know, say, no, all that's, you know, you got a big problem here, and this is really keeping you from psychological health, or this is keeping you from a very deep spirituality, and then you, you know, crush it by mocking it, or, you know, or, or by, you know, shining a light on it, but again, in, in an aggressive fashion, both would be abusive. And so, you know, those who are responsible for being confessors, spiritual directors, have to have this, again, this kind of tenderness of heart, but discernment to be able to see how God is working and has worked in an individual's life. And sometimes, you know, God brings people to himself in and through the chaos of their life, you know, that has taken them through some very dark experiences in their life and uh and and yet god is present there working with his grace they might be holding on from our perspective from you know a thread but they may have a deeper faith than most people that we know including ourselves and so again you know all the more reason to be humble and gentle with others Johnny Ross writes, this egocentric self is an illusion used by the prince of this world to control us. What about the tension between love thy neighbor as thyself and pick up thy cross and deny thyself? What is this self referred to here? Right, it, exactly. It is the false self. And ego, you know, is the struggle for us in the spiritual life. And, you know, because ego arises partly out of our experience of the world, you know, what we've seen and what we've experienced. And, uh, and you know, certainly in the world as it is today, we are influenced by so many different things that shape and form our identity. And then we also have the temptations of the evil one that take hold of that and deepen that view of the self, the false self which makes it very difficult to keep our focus upon Christ or to let go of that false image and to take hold of, of, of the life that Christ offers to us. And we live in a world, and this is where, you know, having studied psychology, I see the value of it and how many people that it's helped. But we, we live in an age of, again, of therapeutic man, therapeutic woman. And outside of faith, outside of the spiritual life, that can deepen this kind of egocentric view uh, of, of the world and others. You know, how do these things impact upon me and my happiness and my sense of self-fulfillment? And so... Uh, a lot of times, so many different forms of therapy uh, can be hobbled by this lack of a fuller vision of what it is to be a human being, the spiritual life, 
our relationship with God. So, you know, psychology, you know, is not going to save the world any more than medicine or any other form of technology. We have one savior. It's not ourselves or anything in this world. That, uh, that was 88, correct? So 89, no, 90, we're on. Do not be so unreasonably silent as to annoy and embitter others. And do not be slow in your gait and actions when ordered to hasten. Otherwise, you will be worse than the possessed and the rebellious. Often I've seen, as Job says, souls suffering from sluggishness of manner but sometimes from dexterity. And I was amazed at the diversity of evil. I love this paragraph and because it's so insightful and in the way that he expresses it is perfectly unreasonably silent as to annoy and bitter others, a fierce silence, an unreasonable silence that we, uh, we will shrink back into simply because we are irritated with others or want to irritate them. You know, it's rooted in a kind of aggression, not again, a silence that is drawing us toward God uh, or to a state that is more contemplative that allows us to listen. But it is this kind of silence that, uh, whose fruit is to embitter others. So we draw away from them, we, we stop communicating with them, and we create division. Uh, and along with that, he tells us he's, we can fall into this slow gait when we're asked to hurry up or to do something. And so again, a passive aggressiveness they see here that is, is rooted in uh, an unwillingness, you know, a lack of humility, a lack of obedience. Yes, somebody, Ambrose, right, like a small child will drag our feet or have to be, I've seen so many parents dragging their kids by one arm through the mall or out of the church, you know, and they let their body hang, the full weight, you know, of their body hang while their poor parents have to drag them. And in the spiritual life, we can be exactly like that, knowing that somebody wants something from us, what we, you know, leads us uh, in our pride to slow th things down unnaturally. They've done studies of this psychologically. When somebody's waiting for a parking space, they've timed people getting into their car and backing out of that. It takes them longer to do that if they know somebody's waiting for it. And so there, there can be this, there's this kind of aggression in us you know, there's not only arrows, but there is this kind of aggression within us that affects our behaviors in so many ways that we aren't conscious of in a, in a given day. And so the, the fathers pick up on this beautifully. They saw it all within the monasteries. You know, you're asked to do something. And so you, you know, you pick up one stone after another, you know, to, to, take as long as you possibly can and during it. And it's for this reason that John says that they're worse than the possessed. You know, those who are rebellious, uh, like the, the devil himself, that even though, you know, this seems like a small thing, you know, dragging one's feet or 
the silence, it actually can be the most destructive thing to relationships, to a community, to a marriage or any relationship whatsoever, even though it seems like it's nothing. And I think this is why the evil one makes such great use of it. And John says to us, you know, sometimes it's out of a sluggishness, you know, a, a temperament where a person is sort of lazy, you know, do, 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 you know, sort of slow moving by nature. Uh, but he says sometimes it's from dexterity. It's a learned behavior that a person has gained over the course of time that they know can be used to irritate others or to get people to quit asking you to do things uh, because you take forever to do them. Uh, and so it can be uh, very problematic to say the least. And he says, I'm amazed at the diversity of the evil that comes about this, that these, this aggressive part of us as human beings can work in so many different ways and so many subtle ways that spiritually we aren't often attentive to them. And so again, when we, we think of our daily examination of conscience, uh, of the, this is one of the things that we would be looking at deep in our heart. You know, have I acted with a spirit of generosity towards others? Have I been willing, shown a willingness to give myself in love, to respond to others' needs where I'm willing to set aside my own at that moment, and not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient, uh, that I, uh, you know, or have I communicated my unwillingness, my lack of generosity towards them? And have I done that so often that, you know, it's become deeply embedded, not only in my behavior, but in the relationship that it breaks down a kind of intimacy, trust, or anything that the relationship is built, built upon, that we really can weaken the foundation of relationships, a community, a marriage, a friendship through, through these kinds of behaviors. So it's really a magnificent uh, paragraph within, within this step. And again, shows us, you know, that they were the first depth psychologists. In some ways, you know, I've read a lot in depth psychology. And, you know, some of what comes through these writings comes to us with far greater clarity because it's so rooted in experience and not uh, simply in the observation of others, but in the struggle with it within one's own, own heart. So psychologically, the best thing for us is to read the fathers as what, you know, as spiritually beneficial to us, it's psychologically beneficial to us as well. Any thoughts about this paragraph? Talk about a bucket of cold water. You know, I think from when we are showed, shown how subtle these movements of the mind and the heart can be, you know, it, it does take away this sense of pride, you know, that we can do these things so quickly and without thinking about them. And yet they can have such an impact upon our relationships with others. Lee Graham writes, what is my motive for doing something a certain way? 
seek pure motives as well as purity of heart, right? You know, to be able to ask ourselves, and again, you know, this is where stillness, silence, and silence are so important that we maintain this state of stillness of heart so that we can be attentive to what's going on within and why we are doing what we are doing and why we are thinking the things that we are thinking. And I think when we are in this state of perpetual uh, distraction, uh, it becomes very difficult for us to do that. I mean, most of us here have had that experience where you come into a chapel or you come to your time of prayer and it can take quite a while simply to get your thoughts to slow down. And this is one of the reasons that we really want to cultivate stillness so that we can be aware, as Lee says here, of, of motive. You know, are our motives pure for doing something? Or, or is it rooted more subtly in the self? Any final comments, questions? So good material, go back, read it, memorize certain paragraphs, sort of like with the scriptures, you know, memorize Psalms, memorize parts of the gospel and memorize some of the writings of the fathers. Always a good thing to do. Okay. So that brings us to 8.30. Uh, before we stop, just want to ask you to, to, to pray next Wednesday. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to have the group uh, but it's also the inaugural event uh, for the beginning of the Byzantine Catholic campus ministry here at the universities. So it's our opening liturgy uh, at, the, at the church here in the center of the universities. And, uh, and so there'll be a lot of priests, seminarians, as well as students there. And so if you could keep us in your prayers in the coming week, I'd appreciate it. But also spread the word too, if you know any parents of children coming here to the universities, let them know that there is an outreach to them here, presence to, to be with them, help them through their university years. Bonalilis wrote, Father, I am afraid you cut out. Can anybody hear me? Can hear you, yes. Okay. All right, I just announced that next week there will be no group and because of the beginning of our, our campus ministry program. So we'll pick up in two weeks, okay, everyone? So thank you all. This is wonderful. As always, it's wonderful discussion, wonderful comments, Ooh. I appreciate it. Every time I go, I find myself going deeper and deeper with these readings, but it's only because of the groups. It's nothing like reading it together to really help us unpack it. It's like group Lexio Divina. It's really an amazing thing, isn't it? It really is. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. It's really beautiful. Okay, why don't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. Thank you, God. Thank you all. Thank you.